Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Heads of Studios in Dublin, welcome to Motherfuck Lore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Tara Crochet. My co-host today is Ola Majectumney. Hello. And our very special guest today is author Dave Rudden. Hi, thanks for having me. You you practically bring your own mic to head uh, <laughs> stuff now, yes? <laughs> Dave was on Juvenalia recently with friends of the show. Um, and Sarah, we're talking to you about Terry Pratchett. Oh, it was just so good. Two hours of just me rambling at my favourite authors. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dave's work, he is an author of the... Is it, is it a trilogy, full trilogy now, yes? Yes. Uh, third one will be out in on March 22nd. Fantastic. Okay. The Knights, <laughs> Knights of the Borrowed Dark. Yeah. It's a great yeah. name. Thank you. Cheers. And it's some cracking stuff. In fact, I'm going to open with the first line from the first book. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of people who aren't familiar with the book, this very first line from your first one, just to kind of reset the scene. Looking back, it had been a mistake to fill the orphanage with books. <laughs> That's a great first line. Thank you. It's the first line of the book that I wrote, actually, which isn't always the case when you're when you're writing a first draft. And uh, I always think your first line is like your handshake, because mm. I used to be a I used to be a teacher and I used to be an actor. And that first ten seconds you walk out on stage are like the most important. So I wanted my first line to be a sort of mission statement for what the book was about. It's a book that's like not particularly pleasant to children um, basically it's sort of like it's a bit more wry and a bit more kind of self-aware than these sort of like normal middle grade adventures where a kid goes off and finds magic because that's sort of what Irish kids are like I mean like like, like I don't want to get ahead of myself or anything mm-hmm. but like when I, when you're reading these books there's a sort of a sometimes there's a little bit of a kind of a twee element or there's just the children are very wide-eyed and very delighted I suppose maybe you would be when, when magic shows mm-hmm. up whereas I find Irish kids or even kids just nowadays who are a lot more genre savvy and a lot more sort of aware of tropes um, if someone jumps out of a closet and says hey do you want some magic do you want to come on a secret crusade it's probably dangerous you're probably going to die like Irish kids would be like what? <laughs> no like English kids are like oh yes marvellous will there be Tiffin? and uh, Irish kids are like is there a catch what's going on who are you here like, so I wanted to kind of capture that with the book yeah I saw your interview actually on the Today Show. You were talking about how you specifically wanted to set your books in Ireland and create this mystical world. Why Why did you choose to do that, particularly in Ireland? Um, well, a big part of it is because Ireland is what I know. And I don't think I could convincingly write 
an English kid or an American kid. Like there's so many little things. Like a friend of mine was talking about a book that she read that was by an American author that was supposed to be set in Britain. But um, the person put like XXX on the end of the messages and apparently British kids just don't do that. Mm. And there's lots of little like site specific things that I wouldn't claim to know about another country. So partially it was that. And then partially it's the fact that like I don't know, Irish people, on one side, we are super invested and aware of our mythology and our folk tales mm. and like, and this apparently isn't like a, I thought it was a global thing, but I know there was an American comedian over who went to a storytelling thing here and was mm-hmm. shocked that someone was like, you know, oh, well, we talk about, you know, the old sun god Lou and everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 as if you live down the road, <laughs> yeah. and which apparently they don't do in America. Um, mm. And Irish kids are like that. But we're also very difficult to please and we're also really quick to poke holes in things. And I wanted to capture that. My main character, Denison, is 13 years old. And much like me, he grew up reading lots of fantasy books, which means if you read enough of them, you start seeing the connective Mm -hmm. tissue. So he's very sceptical. He's very aware of his own abilities and the lack thereof, Uh, which is pretty much like me when I was a kid exactly half of me wanted magical powers and the other half of me knew I'd be no good at them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the only person in the world who can kick a ball sideways. Um, <laughs> so, like, uh, so that's what I wanted to capture. That's sort of, like, self-aware, um, slightly sarcastic, but also quite earnest kind of feel that I feel Irish people have, basically. So It's particularly interesting you mentioned there about people having this familiarity with mytholog- mythological characters as if they live down the road because any time you mention Queen Maeve they're like, ah yeah, you know, good old Queen Maeve, yeah, slay queen. <laughs> no, literally slay queen. You guys need to do like a, a, a merch t-shirt that's like Queen Maeve but it's like slay queen. Like, Absolutely. I'm standing on a bull. But, um, Harry, baby, don't steal it from us. <laughs> it is a really, it's it's a really lovely thing I think that we know our, our culture so well and they're all like I don't I don't know what the first like myth and legend I was exposed to was but we're basically wasn't there used to be like a history book that half of it was like De Valera and things like that, and the other half was like teaching like Oshin and, and all that kind of stuff yeah. as if it were fact which is yeah. actually probably a terrible thing to be doing but like it's kind of nice as well I remember discussing this even no, I think we started learning history in third class so mm. it must have been nine, ten yeah. and uh, then it started with yeah with Legends of Cúchulainn and Fiona Cool, and then it, it trickled on from there you know after Fiona Cool, you go on Damon De Valera and Paul <laughs> Pearson it's <laughs> <laughs> an odd pantheon drop off yeah. There, like, but didn't we skip a famine or something? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So getting back to, I suppose we, we were talking a little bit about Irishness in yeah. maybe young adult and fantasy in general. But obviously, in, in, in your own, I was thinking recently about this because C.S. Lewis was Northern Irish. It wasn't Northern Ireland didn't have the identity then. He, he yeah. died before the trouble started, so he would have had an Irish identity. But even though he was writing for England, they, a lot of lectures, college lectures now says that the Irishness is like it was like the kind of kids hiding under a carpet. There was oh, um, you found that there was constantly little bits of kind of Irishness swelling under the surface, this whole idea that kind of this hidden world behind the subconscious kind of terror beyond borders and things like that. For me at least, um and I probably shouldn't say this in an interview, so often <laughs> the meaning comes afterwards. Yes. Like Going back to the trilogy, there are certain uh, tropes and motifs and themes that now are playing as day to me as to as to why I put them in. Whereas at the time I thought I was just writing a good story and mm-hmm. or hopefully writing mm-hmm. a good story and using what kind of came to me naturally. Whereas um, the monsters in the in the book, the Tenebrous, uh, cross over from this other world, and the book is very much about these the knights. Be, they when they use the power, they slowly turn to iron, which to me was like sort of a metaphor for. I mean, I wanted power to have a cost. I wanted it to be dangerous and 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 scary to use, and that made their bravery more important. Mm. Mm. But one of the things that came from writing the book was realizing that 
as a soldier who fights constantly finds it less and less finds themselves less and less able to uh, identify with the people that they're fighting for or fighting to to protect so too with the knights they the career knights you know have iron across their faces they they don't go outside they don't interact with people and they're very much like border people um and I grew up 4 miles away from from the border and even though I wouldn't claim and I'm very nervous about, you know, claiming that it gives me some extra insight on anything because I don't mm. think it does. I do remember as a kid going to visit my granny in Fermanagh and like, it was just a normal part of it. You go to the fort and the nice men with the machine guns look in at you and you're like, hello. And and they're less pleasant. And, and it's just kind of, that obviously got in somewhere with me where I'm very much about how, w- the changes and the how people adapt to living on the edge of something. Mm-hmm. and But it's it's kind of afterwards I realised that. At the time, it was just a really natural uh, way for me to write the story. And yeah, it's it's a weird one. Like, I mean, it's you always wonder how much the, the writers intend when they're writing it and how much mm-hmm. comes from second drafting and, and redrafting and realising, oh, if I change this slightly here and change this slightly here, suddenly it becomes a really clever metaphor. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it did. There, there isn't very Irish, aside from just the, the locations, I think there is an Irish and particularly like border Irish mentality in the book of these people who live on the edge and see things other people don't see and are very kind of mm-hmm. close to conflict, I guess. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting at the border, and my wife is from Northern Ireland, she's right. from the very, very tip. Of, uh, of Antrim but oh, cool. the um, the idea that the border has its border and there's a, there's a kind of a border mentality and I think there was a phrase someone said from Carrick McGrath to Cross McGlenn you'll find more rogues than honest men yeah. <laughs> and this whole idea that there's a, there's obviously there's the north there's the bit of the north that's near the republic there's the bit of the republic that's near the north and there's the republic and yeah. so there's almost like little borders next to the borders and, and some people become incredibly conscious of these things and mm-hmm. having the idea of this um, amorphous spaces and I think there's something else in your book that the crossing dimensions yeah. has a bordery feel to it too. And the and the sort of thing where in the first book the Tenebris are presented very much as villains because because the knight's magic is so sort of blood and bone and um, there are no schools, there's no turning mice into teacups, there's no sort of because every use of it uses some of you up, there's no place where they can quietly experiment or practice. They have 78 things they can do with it. They normally learn only about 15, um, which partially comes from kind of the realism aspect and partially comes from that I play video games and I never bother using more than the first like three skills that I learn because yeah. Yeah, they're the easiest. Um, but they, over the course of the books, you realise that there are ten of us who are evil, but it is uh it's more of a perception thing on the night side where because they don't have the resources and have never sort of bothered to investigate what it is they're fighting, they just know they have to fight it. The Tenebris have been painted more as villains. Uh, and that was kind of interesting the idea that like, you know, we fear what we don't understand mm. and we don't at a certain point hatred becomes a lack of desire to like learn about it and like yeah. you 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 get to the point where you just see things as others and not as not as people. So even when they're mm-hmm. shapeshifters. But, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, hatred has been kind of expressing itself as a lack of interest is something I've been thinking about a lot recently mm. because I think, say, there's certain global issues happening at the moment. Obviously, there's Brexit, but there's also other things in the world where where people have strong feelings about, about stuff that they're not interested in learning more about. Yeah. And mm. that I'm always I'm always baffled when people have very strong opinions with no detail. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, and I don't know if it's possible to have... Uh, a strong, a, st- a really, really strong opinion on something with with loads of detail because you're always like, I find it difficult to get into arguments with people because I always start arguing their side yeah. and start realising, oh, I'm not allowed to be annoyed because because of this and this and this and this. But the big thing, what I find with certain trolls, for example, people who maybe have opinions in the Irish language or, or a certain other uh, 
massive global possible soon referendums who knows yeah um, <laughs> they'll always talk about how there's no platform for them where they're not where no one's giving them an appearance where they're they have this opinion and they're, they're taking this great risk to say it it's like well how come you and the other hundred comments are all saying the exact same thing and you're all talking about how you can't yeah. you don't have a platform you just said it yeah, yeah, you just said. yeah. like you're not entitled to a platform just because you have an opinion Get back. Um, <laughs> I tend to orbit topics more so than actually talk. No, about no, you're right. I was just looking. Obviously, and you have the um, malleus, mm. and the, you have the um, tenebrous, and obviously these words come from Latin. Mm. And say Latin has a certain cachet in fantasy. In Harry Potter, a lot of the magic has a Latinish sound to yeah. it. And certain languages have a certain, I guess, cachet in fantasy. What would you say your view on say how Irish is used in fantasy literature? Well, it's it's an interesting one because I was I was sort of I was very into and kind of still am uh, Warhammer forty k, which mm-hmm. is like um, uh, for anybody who's who's listening who who's not familiar with it, which is probably a lot of you. Um, it's the tie-in literature to the uh, Games Workshop, like the little like tabletop models. Um, it's got a really ridiculously in-depth like backstory, and there's a lot of really great novels written in in those worlds and some that are not so great mm-hmm. uh, as with all fiction but I was reading one by Ian Watson in must have been in like the late 90s maybe early 2000s and there's this sort of like dramatic scene where these sort of like space elves called Eldar and these like space marines like big giant men in armour are meeting and um, the the humans like argue or point or whatever and this huge you know alien this like dramatic kind of spiked armour goes not be a conch and I was like <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> Do I speak elder? <laughs> and it turns out, and like my my Irish is not is not at all good, so I don't know how grammatically correct it was, or whether he used whatever the mm. whatever the predecessor of Google Translate was. But they, the elder was speaking in Irish. Mm. I was like, that's really interesting, and. Um, and yeah, so there's it. You do see it peppered. I've, I've never like they had full on sentences in Irish, and um, that I kind of barely half understood. But you do see like words just peppered here and there. Like I'm big for my, I really like narrative unity, and I think that if you're going to use, you know, instead of like stealing a couple of words from Irish and a couple of words from ancient Sumerian, you should have a an idea in place. So with Latin, the knights an organisation that was founded in Rome. So Latin mm. is their sort of, um, is their base language. Yeah. Um, knights in other countries would use different, would have different sort of, um, I don't know what the fancy word is, but they would have, they would have a different sort of glossary to choose from yeah. or a different lexicon. Um, and I chose Latin because, partially because that's where the knights come from, partially because I would have a little bit of Latin from from reading a lot of books. And then the other place that the motto of the knights, um, which is... Um, uh, 100 tongues, 100 mouths, one iron voice and the motto of the Hardwick family which is um, yield not to evil but attack all the more boldly are both quotes from um, Ver- or Keats' translation of the Aeneid oh. um, because the first tattoo I ever got uh, which I'm pointing at which you can't see it because you're listening to a podcast um, <laughs> is Quantum Mutatis Ab Elo um, which is how changed is he from what we once knew because I used to be extremely shy and now I'm not um, <laughs> And it's there to sort of remind me that like no matter how bad your situation is, if you like look after yourself, you can, it can get better. And also it can, if things are going well, it can also kind of get worse. So look after yourself type thing. So mm. I have a big sort of emotional connection with that with that work. 
and I was looking through um, a list of quotes from it because that's how I sometimes spend my Friday nights. And, <laughs> um, and I found the Latin for 100 mouths, 100 tongues, one iron voice. And I was like, well, that's, it was after I'd come up with the idea that they would turn to iron, which comes from the old Irish thing of like iron as a defense against magic and iron being uh, the most here thing there is. And, you know, you put iron around your baby when you don't want it to get stolen. Mm. And mm. so I was like, oh, that, Works. And I kind of pretty much lifted it and stole it, and that sort of all kind of tied in back to the Latin being their 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 birthplace, basically. So, excellent. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah good old iron. Huh? And <laughs> so, some people have, I found who got in touch through the Irish Ford, they have an interest in improving Irish they've lost in school. Some people have are coming brand new to Irish, and some people have an interest that stops short of fluency. They're interested in Irish decoratively and maybe for tattoos for things like that. And yeah. I think some of that interest in kind of Celtic stuff. Uh, some of that comes from fantasy and YA and things like that. Yeah. Got, uh, got any, anything that's been, been particularly big or particularly uh, groundbreaking in that area, do you think? Um, I do think, I mean, I think we want the... I, I had eight Irish teachers in my junior third year. Oh. Uh, yeah, it wasn't good. It was just... <laughs> what happened? Uh, <laughs> it was to do with me. Um, we just, we, one teacher left and they just kept getting in subs pretty much for the whole year and um, and a motley collection of, of, of people. And so I sort of, I was kind of okay at Irish before that, but then just that year and then with the exams and things like that and the teacher we got in kind of diagnosed me as being an ordinary Irish student. And, and so... Therefore, well, no, she said that if I did higher Irish, I'd fail it. Uh, and I didn't. I got like, I got like 41% because I did it out of, like, out of spite. Um, <laughs> but my relationship with Irish became adversarial then and that kind of like kept me out of it. But I do think people want an ownership. There's something magical about being able to speak another language, especially mm-hmm. when it's your language. And I think people want that. I mean, people want it for, for tattoos. I remember the day I was getting this tattoo actually the guy in front of me in the queue was there with his girlfriend and um, he was just like give me some runes and the girl behind the counter was like I'm sorry he's like give me some like just runes like, and she was like do you mean Owen do you mean like like mm. what and he's like just runes and she was like come back to me with a photo and he was like <laughs> okay and like left um, and so yeah I do think it's a mm. I can see why people would want to kind of connect to it to like properly understand instead of seeing it as this like other thing yeah I'm often wary. Some people do say, oh, Irish is so beautiful. And that's, there's something weird when something's beautiful because you don't understand it, it actually stops you trying to understand it at yeah. a deeper mm-hmm. level. And I think the idea that actually, yes, there are some people who, who when they hit their toe against uh, against the, the wall, they swear in Irish. There's people who, you know, who, um, <laughs> who get a prescription in Irish order by an Irish. And that's very different from the idea of, oh, that's a beautiful word for a secret. Well, I think the scary thing about that is, is no more than with music, mm-hmm. if you you hear something beautiful and you want to replicate it for the first while, you're going to be really bad at it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so you're not playing what you're hearing. And uh, when I, I got interested in music when I in my first year of college because a bunch of my friends were, were really good musicians. And then when I found out I wouldn't be immediately good at it, I stopped because I was like, I can't be bad for five years. They already got their five years out of the way, but mm-hmm. I don't want to be, I don't want to do a poor replication of what you're doing. So I yeah. just backed away from it, like, which is a pity. We'll be right back after this. Words to That Effect is a literary podcast of the intriguing, the curious, and the unexplored. The show's about culture, history, science, and more, but it's all linked together with literature. Basically, I try to answer the sort of questions you probably didn't know you had, like, why do aliens always land in New York and never in Dublin? Why do the creator of Sherlock Holmes, the most rational detective of them all, believe in fairies and ghosts? Where do zombies come from and why have they taken over popular culture? If these are the questions you now desperately need the answers to, excellent. Words to that effect is for you. The show is the latest addition to the Headstuff Podcast Network, 
Episodes are out every fortnight, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and at wttepodcast.com. Enjoy the show. So an American friend of mine has this great expression, a tooth fairy novel. The idea that there's a novel under someone's pillow that they're never, not quite going to finish or that they expect that's going to be magically finished. It's, oh, that's it's, great. Oh, yeah, that's it's a, cute. It's a great phrase for the, that novel that someone wants to write, has never quite done. And I was thinking I was, I was going to translate that. I'd say a rune lower, like you're, it's a secret. You haven't told anyone you've gotten, give out this book written. That you maybe it's also a wish as well as being a secret. That's and, awesome. Yeah. But then I was thinking there's a lot of our listeners may have a rune lower or a tooth fairy novel at home there. Oh, yeah. Or maybe they've got, you know, they've got written a whole two pages of it. And, <laughs> sometimes if, if you can feel like an impossible dream but mm. you've gone ahead and written it and you've gotten published you've gotten, been successful enough to write more of them you've done well I imagine a lot of people will be interested to know how it happened for you um, yeah so I mean the thing about writing two pages is it's 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 two more pages than someone who hasn't written them and books are just mm-hmm. collections of pages Advice that I would give. So for me, my sort of path into writing started from um, being a very shy and very sort of bullied kid. And I was spending my entire time like in my tiny rural village in Cavan um, playing movies in my head. And um, I never thought I could be a writer. I mean, I loved I loved books, but I never thought to me, writers were really special people who had professor parents or who were rich or who were English uh, or dead. And um, <laughs> I, that, that just wasn't me. And and I think that is a big thing with um, with like newbie writers or or, or uh, uh, neophyte writers now is they go, oh, well, I could never do that. Uh, you know, you read something, you know, absolutely gorgeous. I'm listening to Lisa McInerney's um, the, the Blood Miracles at the minute. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just every single line is just so sharp and so pretty. And nobody writes like that at first. Your first draft mm-hmm. is is a complete mess full of like wrong notes and and like little like comments to yourself saying, come back and fix this later. And it's only over the course of redrafting and redrafting and redrafting that your book actually becomes a book. And so what I would say to people who want to write is your first draft is just you telling the story to yourself. It doesn't matter if it's like 30,000 words or it doesn't matter if it's like mostly bullet points and it doesn't matter if it's badly spelled and it doesn't matter if you know you haven't got like a couple of the main characters right. Get to the end and once you've got to the end you know what that story needs you can go back and fix it and the second draft is a lot easier because you're not worrying about plot you know how the story ends which means you can focus on the bits that need fixing and no matter how bad you think you are some of that first draft will be good and that will make it into the, the final draft so you don't have to worry about those bits so the next time you're only writing half a book and then a third of a book and then a quarter of a book uh, but I definitely when I start writing I have an idea of where it's going but I, I need that first draft down as like, as like a blueprint. Uh, Lee Bardugo, who's a great YA writer, um, says that her, she does like a draft zero, which is just, mm. just throw it all on the page. Like, you know, don't, mm. Don't try and make it anything close to a novel uh, because a first draft is a bit like a first date. It's all like, oh, do you have yeah. any brothers or sisters? Or like, you know, oh, <laughs> what's your favourite colour? And it's not like, no one's going to ever read that. Do you know what I mean? When you become like huge and famous and you have like a booker, you can like, you know, donate it to a library and people can read it then. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like my first draft of The Endless King, which is the third novel in the trilogy, uh, was 125,000 words long. <gasps> and no, uh, yeah, it was 50,000 words longer than it should have been because I was just writing around the book trying to figure out what I needed. And then when I came back to it, it was immensely satisfying to know because I'd written the last page, that whole chapter didn't need to be there. I could just take it out. Or that whole chapter was definitely going to stay in because it now connected to something at the end. And like, you you need the book there before you can actually write the book. That's my kind of thing. So like, don't be too hard on yourself. 
with the first draft. I find that if people go to a lot of, say, writing courses or they look up tips for writers, and this is very true when uh, Elmore Leonard died, and a lot of people thought these are great tips, but I thought they're all don'ts. It's yeah. a list of don'ts. I mean, you know, I've got no, nothing against uh, the late Mr. Leonard, but like, I mean, a list of don'ts, and for some reason, people who teach writing are hate adverbs. Yeah, really? that's why. <laughs> He said quietly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he retorted angrily. I have no. The problem with writing advice is that it's given by writers, and every writer is completely different. Otherwise, mm-hmm. all books would be the same. Mm-hmm. So you get people who say things like, um, "Don't use adverbs," or "Write your first draft with your monitor off, so you can't see what you're writing and can't go back and change it," which is ludicrous advice <laughs> for anyone to give. Like, oh my God. why would you even? Any, uh, um, that's. Imagine if someone like applied that to driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going thirty five. No, no, you have murdered a bunch of people. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one because everyone has a different way of doing it, and writers, a lot of writers aren't teachers, and so it's one thing knowing what you know, and that's an, I think we've all probably had teachers who were very, very good at their subject but weren't necessarily good at explaining that subject to other people. And that's a whole other separate Mm -hmm. skill. And so you have writers who are amazing, but maybe don't know how to convey that process. Then you have writers who maybe don't want to, who are teaching with a bit of an agenda where they want to kind of, you know, make it out to be a lot more difficult than it is to show how cool they are. Um, You've got, which is is absolutely a thing. Um, And then like, you've got writers who, yeah, you've got like whenever I teach writing, um, disclaimer that I teach writing, um, I I try and look at it from their perspective and not mine. And so I don't try and throw too much information. And I never tell them they can't do it yeah. because writing is yeah. self-selecting and people who don't have the interest um, or don't have the dedication, they'll weed themselves out anyway. And I especially I do a lot of teaching writing for kids and I will never tell a kid they can't be a writer. I will never, ever do that. Um, and... I have gotten a little bit of flack from people being like, you know, but you're telling all the kids that can be writers. And it's like, well, like, I'll, if they can't be writers, they can't be writers. I'm not going to, like, stop them. So you're nicer to real children than fictional children. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Well, you have to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the fictional children are mine, so it's okay. No, wait, that's terrible. Um, like, I, I was sort of lucky enough that when I started off, I fell in with a group of, like, Ireland has a, and Dublin, like, has a really good, like, literary scene and a lot of really mm, friendly yeah. people. And, and at first I thought it was just Dublin, but there's actually loads of amazing ones down the country as well. And I was lucky enough to fall in with um, like another great YA writer, Sarah Maria Griffin, who's got a book called Spare and Fine Parts coming out in February, which is another sort of... I've already read it. Oh, have you? Oh, it, it's, it's, it's a really outstanding. good... It's outstanding. Sarah's amazing. Oh, it's, 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 it's got that, really, that thing we were talking about earlier where it's, um, it's set in like sort of a post post-dystopian uh, Dublin where the worst thing has already happened and now they're all rebuilding. And even though it's set in a quasi kind of fantastical landscape, it's still so Irish and it's still so like, because I think Irish people are used to having everything pulled out from under them and having to rebuild. This is the thing, I think, because mm. her previous book was a memoir about um, leaving Ireland and living, moving to San Francisco during mm. the recession. And while well, they're completely different books, they both have this idea of Dublin as a memory kind of hovering in there. And I, yeah. I just love them both. That's really interesting. I want to read that. Now. It's really, really I'll good. I'll it to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about we. Um, you mentioned the mythos within the knights mm. themes, and I thought we would have a look at what some of these terms might be in Irish. I'm so excited for this. It's great. Well, first of all, I suppose I was reading Harry Potter, August and Orkluch recently, mm. and one of the things I found that was quite interesting, particularly for a book that's aimed at people who are already familiar with Harry Potter, 
is to keep some words the same, such as Quidditch, Slytherin, things like that. The idea is that, say, like Hanuk, Harry, Goody, Hogwarts, you know, if you even if your Irish isn't great, you can figure out, yeah, well, that's something to do with how Harry being mm-hmm. in Hogwarts, going to Hogwarts, and it yeah. actually it coaxes the reluctant leader along, a reluctant reader along, mm. not a reluctant leader, we've got too many of those. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering, so on one level, I was thinking, ethically, is it right to translate some of these words? And I thought, no, let's have a crack. And I always like when a translation offers an opportunity, not so much for improvement, but for expansion of the possibilities of the meaning. I looked at the word, the tenebrous are obviously the bad guys, or yeah. the um, antagonists might be more Perfect, accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, so, and, um, and tenebrous, yeah. yeah, there wasn't a direct translation for tenebrous in the folklore, but I did look up tenebrous, and it comes from Latin, and it refers specifically to the the process of gradually extinguishing candles in Holy Week leading up to the crucifixion as a commemoration. So it's a, a candle extinguishing moment. So I thought, do we look at what tenebrous would be phonetically in Irish or do we look at a, a similar meaning? And there's a word, a verb in Irish, mooch, to uh, extinguish a candle. Well, that's, that's great because it sounds a little bit like a muck, like a pig. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really good there. They're, they're ugly, they're horrible, they wear waistcoats and they extinguish candles. <laughs> mook, mook. There's something in there. I thought maybe that's something to do. And then even more excitingly, the Malays, who are the Malay? Um, so they are the sort of regional commanders of the knights. The knights are a are split into different cadres that um, live in different cities in the world. And their sort of on-site commander is... Uh, Malleus, which I have I been pronouncing wrong? I think. <laughs> Malleus. Malleus. Um, and so they're called that because they wield these like long-handled sledgehammers because um, loads of knights use swords. I wanted something a bit more sort of visceral. And uh, so that's, they're literally named after their weapon. Um, so, so yeah, so that's who, that's who they are. So what did we get for that? Well, fantastic. Well, this is one of the great things I found that um, in Irish, a sledgehammer is an ord, but ord has a double meaning. It can also mean an order, such as a religious or a military order. That's so great. I love that. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, <laughs> so we can have some fun with that. And yeah. then the Endless King. Who is the Endless King? So the Endless King is the the ruler of the Tenebrous or their god. In in the in the actual novel, when when Denison asks that question, they say, you know, their their ruler or their god. Some say he is the this other word is called the Tenebrae. Some say he is the Tenebrae and all the Tenebrous are just stray thoughts in his massive and terrible mind. And then someone else is like, I wish wish we knew who was saying that because it's really stressful. Um, he, yeah, he's there. He's their ultimate ruler and they're sort of their god, basically. So Endless King, that's re agriota. The One of the interesting things about re is, as, as well as it can be a gender neutral monarch in certain mm. contexts, it can also be a forearm. That's, that's actually very interesting because, first of all, on the gender neutral thing, because the, the Tenebrous are we give them names and we give them or we sort of assign them um, well the ones who show up in human shape we sometimes assign them genders but for them they're Tenebrous arrive into this world as black liquid and then they build a body from whatever's around so the Tenebrous and I've been asked by this by a, by a few kids in different places you know are the Tenebrous what gender are they? are they gender fluid and they are basically everything about them is fluid mm-hmm. yeah, I think of the forearm as well as interesting because in there's a location in the book called Osrige's Point mm-hmm. um, which is basically five giant peaks sticking out of a um, sticking out of the Atlantic Ocean and when they go there um it's revealed that these five peaks are actually the five fingers of the Endless King's body. And um, 
And when we actually, when we were doing the Latin translation, the uh, I translated it as voice of the king point. I had Os Regis point. And the two Latin translators that, that Puffin brought in, the first one who didn't identify themselves in the manuscript was like, oh, well, actually, it would be like, you've, you've kind of mixed up the translation. It should be this. And, um, oh, yeah, they were like, it should be Vox Regis point. And the other translator, Marcus, uh, who I've never met, but um, deeply love, he was like, what I, my esteemed colleague has failed to recognise is this is, in fact, bones of the king point. So Ossia Regis, so Os Regis point. And I was like, yeah, that's that's that makes sense. Cool. He so, went genitive on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that four hour makes total sense. That's brilliant. Cool. Lex one hundred mouths, one hundred tongues, one iron voice. So that's Cade Bale, Cade Chanka, Glor, Ernie Awan. Cade Bale, Cade Chanka, Cade Ernie Awan. That's awesome. Glor, Glor, Ernie Awan. Because Cage is one of these interesting things as well as means 100, it can also mean first. So that can lead some, mm. because sometimes you're thinking, oh, on Cade Far, Cade Far is obviously the first man, but Cade Far would be, you know, Cade Far would be 100 men, right? Yeah. So cool. it's, uh, these are one of the things when actually matching the, uh, matching the adjective to the noun is terribly important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just a difference of a H, like. Yeah. Dave, we mm. wish we could keep you here all night. But... Oh, can I just move in? <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's absolutely our pleasure to yeah. have you over and I think it's been a great, a great hour session. Uh, Dave, can you tell us where can people get your books and find out more of your stuff? Yes, so you can find out information about me on uh, daveroden.com. You can find, um, I would do bookings for events and things like that. All the details are there. You can buy Nights of the Borrowed Dark, its sequel, The Forever Court, uh, and the third, well, you can't buy the third book yet, so hang on. But you can buy the first two books in any bookshop. And yeah, I really hope you enjoy them. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Cheers. So it's a slant for me. A slant for me. And it's a slant for me. See you next time. Hey gang, Derek here. Just want to say we're, we're in the midst of preparing our next mailbag episode. And we are very interested to know what you think of the show. We're especially interested in hearing what you think of the show in reviews on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Motherfucker comes out every Friday, the Head Stuff Podcast Network. If you can't wait that long for your podcast fix, you might be interested in some of the other Head Stuff shows, such as Words to That Effect. I want to thank Brian for producing the show today, Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork, and Dave Roden for being a wonderful guest. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Gary Jean McAvoy about the Irish language aspects to the Article 40.3.3 in the Irish Constitution, sometimes known as the Eighth Amendment. It'll be a good one. Till the next time, Slán. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Can't be talking too loud. There's interviews going on in the next room. (laughs) 